So there's a story of a dog walking along, and he sees a now-hiring poster outside of a computer store. The poster reads, must be able to type, must be able to program, and must be bilingual. We are an equal opportunity employer. So the dog takes the poster in his mouth, and he walks into the store. The manager spots the dog, and he says, well, that's kind of cute. So he decides to humor the dog a bit, so he pulls up a chair and a laptop computer beside the dog. He says, all right, if you want to work here, first of all, you need to prove to me that you can write a letter. Prove to me that you can write legibly. So the manager leaves the room with his laptop in there, and he returns 30 minutes later. When he returns, he notices that the dog has typed out a completely error-proof letter error-free letter. He says, huh, well, that's strange. You are an unusual dog. I see that, but can you program? Create me a website for my business. The manager once again leaves. He comes back after another 30 minutes have passed. When he returns, he notices that the dog has indeed made a perfectly running website for the store. The manager shocked. He looks at the dog and says, look, I, I, I get it that you've got the qualifications, but well, you're a dog. The dog takes his paw and he taps on the words, we are an equal opportunity employer that are typed on the poster. The manager sighs. Okay. Okay. But it also says that you must be bilingual. There's no way you are bilingual. The dog, <laughs> the dog sorry. The dog looks him square in the eyes and says, meow. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, there you go. There's your joke of the day. If you're visiting with us, I might not be the best preacher in town, but I sure do tell the best jokes. At least I keep telling myself that way. And Gene even clapped for me today. That means I must have got a good one in there. Gene come up to me one day and said, Pastor, I, don't, I, I love your preaching, but I don't really like your jokes. But they're growing on her. They're growing on her. <laughs> uh, amen. Well, we're in, a, we're in week three of our series called Set Free. If you missed parts one and two of this series, I encourage you to go online and listen to those to get caught up. Today's message is actually a continuation, and it was uh, three weeks ago, so it's been a while, about what we talked in part two called Believer Beware. I had so much positive feedback from that message alone. So many people told me how it helped them, how practical it was. So if you missed that message, I encourage you to go online and listen to it. We talked about, if you remember, we talked about the wolf, more specifically the evening wolf and how to defend yourself against the attack of the wolf, spiritually speaking. Today we're going to continue that thought. But not in the way I had originally planned. Sometimes we get a plan and then God comes in and, and, and gives me, throws me a little curveball. But I really feel like God has given me a, a, a great, strong, powerful truth for you today. When I was originally writing this message, I was going to go a complete different direction. I was going to go back to Habakkuk chapter 1, which is where we were in part 2, and talk about more ways that Satan and his demons uh, come after us based on that passage. I actually had some of it written but as I was writing, I felt very strong that God was speaking to me, and he said, no, there's actually something else I'd need you to address about the wolf. So if you remember from part two, Satan and his demons, just a quick recap, are referred to in Scripture as wolves. Before a wolf attacks, it'll study up, it'll size up its prey, and it'll wait for just the right moment to make its move. 
When Satan came after Jesus in the desert to tempt him, when he failed, it says he left him for a more opportune time. He waits for the perfect opportunity to strike you, the opportunity when he knows he will have greater success. When a wolf is watching the sheep, he watches and he waits until he sees one separate itself from the rest of the sheep. Once the sheep is alone, he goes in for the kill. He waits for the sheep on the fray. Proverbs chapter 18 and verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Do you see that? We're more likely to do something foolish in isolation. Your enemy knows this. And just like the wolf, he waits for these moments to leash his attack. That's what we talked about in part two. But the question I believe God wants us to address today is this. What strategy does Satan use to get us in isolation? What does he do, what strategy does he do to get us to separate ourselves from the other sheep, so to speak? Because he knows if he can get us alone, if he can get us to separate ourselves from other believers, he's got us. His chances of influencing us at that point becomes greater. And I believe this is one of the reasons that we're told this in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the the day drawing near. It tells us not to neglect meeting together with other believers, encouraging one another, even more so as we get closer to the return of Jesus. So what does Satan do to get us on the fray? Here we go. This is truly amazing. And I I never made this connection until I sat down to write this to, to prepare this message. If you have your Bible or Bible app, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4. Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, we have them available for you in English and in Spanish out at the Hub. Just stop out there and see whoever's at the Hub after service, and we'll make sure that we get you a Bible there free. So so we want to bless you with that. Okay, before we read this, I want to just to give you a little background. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and his disciples are asking him about the end of the age. They're asking him for signs of when he's going to return. Here is what he says, starting at verse 4. And Jesus, uh, and Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now verse 10 is the verse I want you to notice. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as witness to all nations, and then the end will come. 
I'm calling this message Sheep on the Fray. Father, for the next few moments, I ask that you would give me your anointing. God, that you would give me the mind of Christ to present this, Lord, the way you want it presented. God, I believe that there are some people in this room today that are radically going to be transformed by this truth. And so, God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would even begin to speak now to those that really need to hear this and understand this truth. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, we served at a church in Greeley, Colorado as the family-slash-children's pastor. When we interviewed there, we told the pastor and board that we are very outreach-driven and we would like to start a bus ministry to pick up the kids and the youth from all over the city and bring them into church to, to, to allow them to hear about the love of God. And they all thought that that was just wonderful. They all clapped and they all cheered because as a Christian, that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we preach. They had all agreed, it's all said in agreement, that the church at that time had become too inward focused. And so they thought, the thought of reaching the lost of the city was appealing to them. That's what we should be doing. That's what we need to do. Well, we arrived in January of that year, and then shortly after Easter, we decided to start the bus ministry. I was told by the church, before the church would buy a bus, so I had to use what we currently had. So we had a 15-passenger van, and I was told that if we filled that, I could then get a bus. That was fair enough. I agree with that approach. I preach that. Be faithful with, you, with what you have, and then God will give you more. So we took out that van. We filled the van with a few kids. It was Caleb and I, and, and we brought them to church. Within a couple months, the, the van was full, all was well, things were going good. It was just a handful of kids at the time. And so I asked for my bus, and I got the thumbs up. We found an old bus out on a, a farm, and we purchased the bus from, for $2,000 from a local farmer. We got it painted, got it ready to go. Well, now that I had more seats, we decided to go out and do a big push in one of the trailer parks there. And then the next Sunday morning, we had more than 40 new kids riding the bus and coming to church. And that is the day that everything shifted. When those 40 kids, I, I remember this like it was yesterday, when those 40 kids piled off the bus into the church that morning, the looks I got from some of the longtime church members could have peeled paint off of the wall. People instantly started to complain to the pastor. People threatened him and told him that they were going to leave the church if we kept bringing these kids in. It happened almost overnight. And one of the reasons that they told him is that, Pastor, we don't feel safe anymore. And I'm like, they're just kids. I wanted to throw a Bible at them and say, have you read this book? Show me in this book where the gospel is safe. Jesus left heaven and came into the muck to be murdered. Why don't you talk to him about being safe and shutting the doors because we want to be safe? I couldn't believe it. I was shocked because in my mind, I'd never faced this before. I thought the church was supposed to be a hospital for the hurting, not just a nice little waiting room for the saints as they all wait to go to heaven singing kumbaya. And I thought every Christian thought that way. We're to go out and win the lost and we're to make disciples. That's what Jesus told us to do. Jesus said, I want you to go into the highways and the hedges and compel the people to come in so my father's house will be full. The word compel translated from the Greek in that passage means to force or to make somebody do something. 
This isn't just a casual command of Jesus to go out and play footsie with people hoping they get saved. This is a command from Jesus that said, you do what you have to do. The harvest is ripe. The time is now. Go after them. And I thought that was the heartbeat of every Christ follower. And I quickly realized how wrong I was. You see, when we interviewed, everybody was pumping their fist in agreement saying, yeah, that's what we need to do. Let's go do it, pastor. But as soon as we were actually doing it, those same people were like, whoa, whoa, time out, hit the brakes. What are you doing to my church? You're going to ruin my church. That's what I was told. You see, here's the truth. Most people, they're all talk. They talk evangelism. They talk winning the lost. They talk helping the poor. But that's about as far as it goes. Let's just be real. And when we interviewed at the church, I thought, I'm sure that that was probably the thought because everybody says that. No pastor's going to go into an interview and say, yeah, I don't believe in evangelism and winning the lost. I'm above all that. I'm not going to do that messy stuff. Nobody says that. So I'm sure in their mind, talk was as far as it would get, and we would just go along, we would keep status quo, we would tickle a few ears along the way, but when that first bus full of kids pulled into the parking lot, several of those members realized that day, dear Lord, this is for real. They're not just talking about it. Can I, can I be honest with you on something? I remember the first Sunday that we ran buses here in Green Bay. I, I still remember this. We picked up some people, loved them, to help them. I remember we had, a, we had a few messes that morning. I don't remember exactly what happened, but there was some, some people that were, you know, you know, saying some things. And so I remember sitting in the front row during the praise and worship time. And I remember sitting there thinking, here we go. This is the moment right now that's going to determine our future in this church. Because I've talked about it for a year and a half now. But today the people see that this is for real. This is what we're doing. Because I remember what happened to us in Colorado. I was certain that when I got to the church the next day, several of you would be waiting out in the parking lot to tar and feather me and beat me with bars of soap. <laughs> but that never happened. You embraced the vision. I watched you love on people when they walk through the doors. You have helped feed people. You have helped clothe people. You have helped disciple people. You have sacrificed to help others. I am truly amazed at the amount of people in this church that serve somewhere helping people. I want you to know that Kyla and I thank God for you. Every one of you, you are an answer to our prayers because you have sacrificed, you have embraced it, and because you have embraced it, look at what God has done. Amen. That's you guys. Thank you. With every week that passed in Colorado, the worst it seemed to get, I didn't know that Christians could be so mean and cruel. And I say that with all honesty, I really didn't. I mean, I expected it on the streets, but I thought, to me, a Christian should know better than this. And because of this, slowly my heart started to harden. I quickly became better, bitter, and I was completely offended by the behavior of these people, by the behavior of these Christians. I'd never dealt with this before. In ministry, I lost my joy but the straw that broke the camel's back was a meeting. I was in a meeting with a board member and the pastor. And the board member looked at me and said, I kid you not, I don't want you picking up trailer trash and bringing them to my church. 
right in front of the pastor. True story. I mean, I read between the lines there. That's who I was. That's where I come from. I was a bus kid when I was young. My mother was married seven times. You've heard my story before. I was the little boy living in the rundown trailer at the end of the block. This board member in a roundabout way was calling me trailer trash. I knew what they were doing. And as you can imagine, it highly offended me. Some of you are offended right now just for me telling you the story. And I was done. I wasn't just done at the church. I was ready to completely leave ministry. I was ready to leave the church as a whole. I'm done with this. If this is the way Christians act, I want no part of this garbage. I was done. My heart was calloused and hard. Now, I want you to notice something. I want you to see what was happening. I was beginning to move away from the other sheep, and I was headed, to, headed towards the fray. I didn't want to be around the other sheep. These sheep are mean. These sheep have big snarly teeth, and they're foaming at the mouth. I think these sheep might have had rabies. Look like this. Do we have that picture up there? There it is. <laughs> Took that picture in the lobby one. No, I was kidding. Bunch of rabid sheep running around the church. I'm just having fun. You know, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny back then. I'll never forget the day I was driving to church on a Sunday morning, and I, I was just letting God have it. I was done. Moved my family to Colorado, and this is the thanks I get, God. Are you kidding me? So I said, God, I can't do this anymore. God, these people are mean. Just having myself a little part, pity party, a little cry fest, if you will. I remember sitting at a stoplight just down the street from the church. And I still remember that stoplight. I could take you back there today. The light was red, and I'm in my truck, and I'm just yelling out to God. The light turned green, and I just sat there, and I kept complaining, and I kept yelling. It's early in the morning, so no one else is around. But I'm not leaving this stoplight right here. God, we're going to have this out. I remember when the light turned red again, God spoke to my spirit very clearly, and I heard him say, Matt, did I send you to Greeley? That's where we were, Greeley, Colorado. And I just sat there. I knew the answer to that question. The way he had opened doors for us to get there, it was nothing short of a miracle. And we even said many times, man, I know that God is in this because he's opened all these doors and the way he worked it out. So I said out loud, yes, I believe you sent us to Greeley. Then I heard him say, then what's the problem? Do what I've called you to do. And that was it. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted him to say, you poor thing, them mean old people, how about I rain down a little fire from heaven and consume them in my wrath? And I wanted him to say, like, say it like that too. Emphasis on the word wrath. But he didn't say that. He said, do what I've sent you here to do. And something happened to me in that moment. It was like a new fire was lit inside of me. And I remember grabbing the steering wheel and saying, okay, God, then I'll tell you what. I don't know how much longer you're going to keep us here. I don't know if you're going to have us here another month or another 10 years. I just don't know any of that. But here's what I do know, God, and here's the way it's going to be. <laughs> I'm going to make it a point in the time we have remaining here in this city to win as many people as we can to heaven. I'm going even harder after the lost. I'm going to work hard to fill every seat in that place for your glory 
And I pulled into the church parking lot that morning, and I had a new kick in my step, a new fire in my bones, and amazingly, all the offense and bitterness was gone. It just seemed to melt away because I no longer cared how I was treated. It wasn't about me anymore. I was there for him. I was there on mission from God, and I was going to love them regardless if they loved me back or not. I couldn't control that. And I also realized that people that opposed me were not my enemy. I remembered what Paul told the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. This is what he says. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Understanding where the opposition was coming from helped me to see people in a different light and love them regardless of how they treated me. That day was the day that the ministry really started to take off. We ended up when we left with eight buses running two services, Tuesday and Wednesday night, more than 600 kids in attendance. I watched hardened gang members come with their kids and give their lives to Jesus, and I've told you about some of those stories. We went hard after people, and the Spirit of God moved in such a mighty, amazing way. But I tell you that story for a reason. The wolf just about got me. And if I would have kept walking down that road... He would have dug his fangs in and listened to me. I would have had nobody to blame but myself. You see, this is what the enemy did, and this is what I want you to see today. He used other Christians. Don't think you can't be a vessel in the hand of Satan. He used other Christians. I believe they were saved as a means to hurt me, thus offending me. We're going to talk more about that in weeks to come. But due to my offense... I started to separate myself from other Christians and head out towards the fray. Praise God, the good shepherd met me in my truck that day and he brought me in or the wolf would have shredded me and I wouldn't be standing here before you today. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15. He says, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but they are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. This means these wolves are going to look like other sheep. They're going to be called sheep. They're going to act like other sheep. They might even smell like other sheep, but they're not a sheep. They're a wolf. Jesus tells us the parable of the weeds getting in with the wheat. How many people have left churches, have left the faith? They're not even following God now because they were hurt by another Christian. I just about did. Just recently, actually, it's probably been about a year now, I had a family leave this church. They were very faithful for a while. They were serving. They just up one day up and left. I heard anything. I didn't hear anything. And I, anytime that happens, I always wonder, man, what in the world? Did I say something to tick them off? I mean, it was the whole mask thing, so maybe that was it. Is my preaching really that bad? I mean, it wasn't my jokes because my jokes are amazing, but it might be the preaching, I guess. I mean, what, what did I do? And that's what I always think. What did I do? And most of the time, I find out I didn't do anything. Come to find out months later, I found out they left because one Sunday, another church attendee said something rude to them, so they never came back. As far as I know, they're not going anywhere now. 
Now, you might say, that's, boy, that's kind of ridiculous, but I'm telling you, this happens a lot. Over the years, I have watched many leave because somebody said something to them in the church. Offense. We get offended by the other sheep, so we leave the herd and we head out to the fray where the wolf is waiting to strike. Listen to me. Satan wants you on the fray. The way he gets you on the fray is through offense. He will send the spirit of offense disguised as another sheep to hurt you. So you will move away from the other sheep, but more importantly, you will move away from the shepherd. And when you're on the fray, wham, he got you. And now you want nothing to do with God, and you want nothing to do with this church. If I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, I want nothing to do with God because I have been hurt by the church. Somebody in the church did me wrong. If that's the way that a Christ follower, Christ follower acts, man, I want no part of this. You ever heard someone say that? I've been hurt by the church. I have said it myself. It's the spirit of offense. And I believe it's Satan's top strategy to get you to separate yourself from others so he can get you alone on the fray. Jesus tells us himself that it is impossible that offense will not come. Eventually, somebody is going to say something to offend you. I guarantee it. The question is, will you take the bait? But here's the reason the wolf, I believe the wolf disguises as a sheep. And the story I told earlier, I had people say nasty things like that to me before. This wasn't the first time somebody said something negative to me. But this was the first time for another Christian to treat me this way. You see, when you're doing street ministry and somebody ridicules you on the street, you just kind of dust it off and move on. You figure they're not serving God. That can be expected, no big deal. Your expectation of that person is different. However, if another Christian comes up to you and says the exact same thing to you, it's much easier to get offended. Why? Because your expectation of the Christian was higher than the person that is not a Christian. They say the exact same thing to you, but one carried the spirit of offense, one did not. And typically, we typically put a higher expectation on the Christian than on the non-Christian, and rightfully so, because the Word of God tells us that we should be separated from the world, set apart from the world. So when another Christian wrongs you, it stings a bit more. Because the expectation is higher. Satan knows this. So he infiltrates in and he attacks you from the inside. Is this making sense? You have to remember who the real enemy is. It's not the person sitting next to you right now. It's not the person that cusses you out in the lobby. There is a wolf coming after you. And it will come after you disguised as another sheep to get you on the fray. This will not stop, guys. The wolf will not quit. I don't care which church you are in. It will happen regardless of where you are. We have to learn as individuals to recognize it for what it is and put up our guard and to guard our heart from the spirit of offense. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, which we read earlier. I'm going to read verse 10 again. He said, and then many will be offended will betray one another, and will hate one another. Notice the progression. 
the first step is to be offended. If you allow the spirit of offense to take root, that leads to betrayal. Betrayal is defined as a violation of a person's trust or their confidence. Betrayal then leads to hate. Let me paint a word picture to help you understand this. You, met a, you meet a friend in church. His name is Bob. We'll just call him Bob. Bob goes hard after God. He's a good Christian man. And talking to Bob, you realize he has some pretty strong political beliefs that are a lot different than yours. And so one day he says something to you that's a bit of a shock to you. The spirit of offense comes knocking at your door. Now, if you open the door and allow yourself to become offended, your trust in Bob will now be damaged, and then you start to question his motives. You start to question more. When you go home, the conversation keeps playing in your head, and you stew on the offense. How could he say that? How could he believe that as a Christian? I thought he was a Christian. And the next thing you know, here comes that little voice that says, you know, if that's the kind of Christians that are in that church, you should just leave. You deserve better than that. So you leave. You put yourself out on the fray where the wolf is waiting in the weeds. Just to be clear, Bob is not the wolf. Bob is not the enemy. But the wolf, the enemy, is working through Bob for one reason, to get you to separate yourself from the herd. Don't take the bait. Now, let's bring this down to a practical level. How do we apply this? How do we protect ourselves from becoming offended? Because that's really the question. It's going to happen. The enemy's not going to quit the attack. If he fails once, he's going he's to come again, and he's going to wait for the most opportune time to do it. He's going to wait for your, then you're discouraged anyway. You're, you've had a bad week anyway, and somebody's going to say something to you. He waits for the opportune moment. But you cannot control what other people say to you. You cannot control what other people say about you. Remember, Jesus said, it is impossible that offense will not come. It will come. How do we continue to protect ourselves against this? Practically speaking, Jesus tells us. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43. Now he tells us, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Here's what he says. He says, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. That's what the believer does right here. For he gives us sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Any, even pagans do that. If someone treats you badly, Jesus tells us to pray for them. It's hard to be offended when you are praying for someone and asking God to bless them. That's not easy to do. But look at what King David says in Psalm chapter 35 and verse 11. This rattles me a bit. Okay, pray, but look at what David says. Psalm chapter 35 and verse 11. He says, fierce witnesses rise up. They ask me things that I do not know. They reward me evil for good to the sorrow of my soul. Verse 13, but as for me, when they are sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. 
Do you see that? David said, people have treated me bad. I try to help them. They repay me with evil. To the sorrow of my soul. That means it hurt him deeply. This is a deep wound that he is carrying. This has happened to all of, the, all of us. I believe every one of us in here could tell us of someone that has hurt you very deeply in the past. But look at what he does. He has been deeply wounded by somebody. And look at what he does when that spirit of offense comes knocking. Verse 13. But as for me, when they're in need, when they're sick, I not only pray for them, but I fast for them as well. That God would heal them. Now, guys, that's no joke hard to do. To put this into perspective, I know a family, a mom, she had to raise her little girl all by herself because her daddy was in prison, her husband was in prison, the daddy of the girl. He was in prison because when his daughter was younger, she was sexually molested by another family member. Dad responded and he quote unquote took care of it. Now I never asked them what that meant, but the fact that he was in prison, I kind of connected the dots. Some sicko hurts his little girl, and in defense of his little girl, he makes a decision that would change the rest of his life. And I think every parent would understand that. I put myself in the shoes of this father many times, because it's kind of an extreme case, and I've asked, what would I have done if that would have happened to me? What would you have done? I know for many of us, especially us dads, if we're honest, we would say, I would probably be in prison too. Here's the question, and this is where this gets gut-wrenching and challenging. Rather than taking the matter into our own hands, do you think you could stop instead and pray for them? Ouch. Take it a step further, as David says, do you think you could fast for that person? Think about that for a moment, man. That's hard to do. Because when somebody hurts you like that, offense takes root and it turns to betrayal and betrayal turns to hatred as Jesus said. And now God, you're asking me to fast for them? God, what's up with this? Really? You're asking me to fast and pray for someone that has betrayed my little girl? That sounds mean. I mean, how do you deal with that? You see, when Jesus tells us to take up our cross, this is what it means. This is what it looks like. Carrying our cross is not easy, but look at what James tells us in, in, in chapter 5 and verse 16. He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You see, when you've been hurt by someone, I'm going to wrap this up. The only way that you're going to heal from that hurt is through forgiveness. That's what's, this is what God has shown me. If we carry the offense, we'll struggle with anger, hatred, bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness tears us up on the inside. And we will carry that hurt and that pain every day, all of our life. Some of you are carrying it right now. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is no longer wishing harm on the other person, but that's hard. And there's some things in life that are easy to forgive, and there's other things in life that, man, don't, don't even ask me to do that. I can't do it. If you've truly forgiven them, though, you can pray for them and you can fast for them. And he watched this. It actually sets you free. 
understand something. Here's what I've come to realize. And this has made it easier for me. If you get nothing else from this message, I want you to hear this. When Jesus tells us to pray for those that wrong us, he doesn't tell you to do that for their benefit. He tells you to do that for your benefit. Because when we do that, it keeps us from allowing the spirit of offense to take root, which will eventually destroy you. So the next time someone says hurtful, hurt, something hurtful to you or they do something hurtful to you, remember who the real enemy is and what the enemy's trying to do. The person is not the enemy. The enemy's working through them to destroy you. You have to take the fight there. You have to fast and you have to pray. Recognize this when it happens. Be alert. Be on guard. Do not separate yourself from the herd. You know, it helps me for those that have wronged me. And there's people I'm praying for right now that have wronged me recently. God, would you bless them? God, would you bless their family? Would you give them health? But you see, when I understand that I'm praying that way for them, not for them, I'm praying that way so I can be healed. So I can be healed. This is the key to being set free. And so when Jesus tells us to do this, he's telling us to do this for a reason because he says, I love you and I want you to be free. And I know what they did was hard and I know what they did hurt you very deeply, but trust me, one day I'm coming back to make it all right. But until then, you have to trust me and you have to pray and you have to fast and you have to forgive because when you do that, I will set you free. You will be set free. You won't feel that rage and that anger and that bitterness anymore. Give it to me. Separating yourself is the worst thing you can do. That's what Satan wants you to do. Instead, I encourage you to stay close to the shepherd. Allow him to be your strength and your refuge. Do not take the bait. Can I have you bow your heads and close your eyes? God, I just want to thank you for this message. I believe that there's some people in here, God, that are carrying some pretty deep offense. There's people in this world that they hate. They've been offended. They've resented. They hate. And they say, there's no way I could ever pray for them, let alone fast for them. Are you kidding me? But God, we do it so we are set free. And so, God, I just pray, Lord, that this message, as hard as it is today, we can't change the past. As hard as this is today, God, I just pray, the Holy Spirit, that you would just come upon your people right now in this moment, and you would just minister to them lovingly, God. Those that are hurting and in pain from an affliction that someone else has caused them. And God, that you would give them the strength to let it go and that they would be healed and that they would be set free and they wouldn't walk with that resentment and that heaviness and that anger and that rage anymore, God, but they would be set free. I ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, the holy, strong Son of God. I thank you for freedom, God. In Jesus' name, I want you to keep your head bowed and your eyes closed.
before I close the service, I always like to give you an opportunity to get your life right with God. And I believe that there's some people in this place today that you need God in your life and you need Him in your life bad. You can't do this and pray and, and fast for someone unless you've, got, unless you've got God in your life. It's too hard. So I want to give you an opportunity right now if you're in this place and you want to get your life right with God. What I'm going to do is I'm going to count to three here in just a moment. If that's you, what I want you to do when I get to three is I just simply want you to lift your hand because I want to pray with you and I want to see who's, who I'm praying for today. You say, Pastor, I want to give my heart to God. I want to surrender my life to Him. I want to confess my sins. I am a sinner. I want Him to forgive me. You're going to have that opportunity right now. With every head bowed and every eye closed, when I get to three, you say, Pastor, will you pray for me? I want to surrender to God. I just want to see your hand in this all over this place. We're going to pray together. One, two, three, right now. Just put them up, 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 put them up. Yes, I see them. Several hands going up right now. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. God, you are so good. You can put your hands down. Now, those of you that just lifted your hands, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a prayer. I'm going to say it slowly, and I want you to repeat it out loud after me. Do something very bold. Those of you that didn't lift your hand, I want you to say this with them to encourage them today. The Word of God tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that He rose from the dead, we will be saved. And that's what we're doing today. We're going to confess with our mouth. I'm going to lead you in this prayer to confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I want you to say this with me loud and strong. Say, Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today and I confess that I'm a sinner. I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. And today, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to cleanse me. I ask you to make me brand new. Today, Jesus, I confess and I believe that you are my Lord, my God, and my Savior. I surrender to you. From this day on, Jesus, I am yours. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for setting me free. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.